Coming up in this podcast, the RISE WA Business Awards, post-COVID recovery package, Bustleton's Jetty Project, Pilbara Port Deal, Megan Wins Wealth and ECU's Perth Campus. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. First up, Mark, we had the Rise WA Business Awards this week. Who were the winners? Yeah, look, the latest instalment in our own annual business awards, uh, celebrating um, a really interesting array of WA businesses with a focus on businesses that continue to achieve growth um, and innovate um, in these changing times. The big winner on the night, Western Australian Business of the Year, Hera Engineering. Mm. A relatively new business, been going about six years, set up by an engineer named Matteo Tirapelli. They're a specialist structural engineering consultancy, worked on many of the most prominent buildings around Perth, and most of us wouldn't realise it. Yeah. And I guess the key contribution they make is, I guess, the the internal stuff that we don't really see. And one of the really big achievements they make is helping people uh, lower costs, you know, substantially reduce the use of concrete, for example, and steel to try and make buildings more efficient. Mm. So the WA Museum, Bulabada, up in uh, Northbridge, that was one of their first big projects. Uh, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel down at Elizabeth Quay, uh, the Rechabite Hall renovation in Northbridge, um, the big apartment tower being built next to Subi train station. That's one of their projects. Um, and they've also they've expanded interstate. Um, a lot of this work is in tandem with Multiplex, you know, an acknowledged leader in big construction projects. They're currently working on, a I think, an 82-storey tower in Brisbane, uh, which I believe will be the tallest building in that city. Yeah, right. Um, so they've worked on a lot of projects. And... Look, you know, we heard Matteo speak at the awards ceremony on Thursday night. Um, he's a really interesting guy. Um, he, he grew up in Italy. Uh, yeah, actually, Italian immigrant, still, you know. <laughs> and and came to story. Perth for the windsurfing. Yeah. And, and why wouldn't he? And his first, his first job here, he was washing dishes mm. in a restaurant uh, to pay the bills uh, before he got himself established as an engineer. Um, and I guess that says that sort of background says something that he's just brought a, a really fresh perspective, which is how he's allowed this business to build a, a very significant niche. He's got about 25 people on his team now. Uh, he said one part that's been really important, they've, they've brought in some very clever software for, that's used in the US construction industry, yep. and that's helped them achieve a lot of these goals. So look, it's a great story, and I suspect we'll be hearing a lot more about Hero Engineering in future. I'm sure. And who are the uh, There were some other interesting category winners there. Yeah, look, we had eight different categories. Um, and look, like we often have at these award ceremonies, you know, when the winners get up there on stage, it's just amazing to hear how different they are and, and their personalities and their motivation <laughs> yes. and their style and so on. Uh, look, everything from um, Pleco Energy. Now, they're a, a solar power business, but the, the key twist in their business model is that they it's, it's solar as a service. Yes. So they effectively pay up front for your solar panels on the roof, and then you sign a 10-year contract and pay for it over time. Yeah. Uh, they're getting some good runs on the board. 
Um, in the not-for-profit sector, we had the West Australian Ballet and some of the innovative things that they did to deal with the impact of COVID. Um, and you know, the uh, artistic director, Aurelian Scanella, stood up there and talked about running a ballet company is a business. Mm. It's a large commercial undertaking, and they're one that's doing very well. Well, I think that he made that point. They've expanded from, I think he said, 35 people to 50 people or something like that, or yep. artists. And uh, he said, nowhere in the world almost has there been any expansion. In fact, the trend has been reduction because of COVID. Quite yep. a story. No, good on them. Um, and look, a couple of names that are probably more familiar to some of the listeners. Uh, Brooks Hire, uh, set up by Doug Brooks a bit over 40 years ago. Um, you know, you see their yards out at Canningvale, all that big heavy equipment that they, uh, they rent out. They've expanded a lot. He said the last three years are probably the best he's ever had yeah. in the business. He's not the only business person to say that. That's either. true. <laughs> and also remarked that he said he was on the brink of selling or considered selling the business about eight years ago, but he's now got his children coming through. Um, he's got his son, Stuart, and his daughter, Lenore, and they're now running the business. Um, so a nice story there. They've got seven branches in WA. They've got 16 around the country. Um, so a good story. Another one, Mater Group, uh, mining services business. They won Employer of the Year. Um, they've got 1,600 people. Yeah, and that was you know, set up by Luke Mater about 15 years ago as a, you know, one guy in a ute. And now got this, and they're expanding internationally. Um, EK Services up in Kununurra. Um, and another great little story, Flower Box Home Fragrance. This is an example of where something at first glance, you think, is that a real business? <laughs> but it's becoming that. They're getting great traction uh, by putting together these sort of little packages, home fragrance packages. Yeah, candles and diffusers and all that stuff that yeah. people put in their homes. And I spoke to someone at the awards who's actually a customer and uh, was raving about how good it is. Yeah, right. Um, and once again, they've put in place the systems and the structures. They've done really well in WA, now planning a national expansion. So, you know, there are business opportunities all over the place. Yeah, no, a remarkable story. Well, great, Mark, and it was a great night. Uh, nearly 700 people there, which was uh, quite something, uh, especially this time of year. Uh, it's great that... Uh, you know, people are pretty busy, festive season, and it was great that everyone was there and really enjoying it. And they were certainly enjoying it. When I left, there was tons of people still there. And look, there was actually, I think, a bit over 130 organisations entered the awards across those eight categories. And a lot of people that didn't win still loved the experience, including people that were shortlisted for some of the awards. Mm. And... Now, people came and spoke to me about how it was an important validation for their business because they'd never put themselves out there before to get any sort of independent assessment. Yeah. And they thought it was really nice and to meet other people, you know, in all sorts of fields. So, yeah, a great night. Agreed. Um, now, big change of topic here. The state government has announced a $185 million COVID recovery package. What were the details? Um it's been a, uh, a package that's been welcomed, though I think the other immediate comment from people is about time too. Mm. So the government is targeting a whole range of areas 
to try and sort of crank up the economy once we reopen, which we expect will be late January, early February next year. Uh, one big part of it is about re-establishing flight routes um, internationally, uh, including you know some of the ones that have been halted, as well as some new ones to places like Germany, India, China. Uh, also talking about targeted advertising campaigns to attract international students, get the international tourists back in WA, and get the skilled workers that so many businesses are desperately in need of. Uh, Also throwing out some incentives for overseas visitors to come here. Um, And then on top of that, extra funding to attract business events and um, other events that might attract tourists. a very competitive space. You know, there are governments not just around Australia but around the world who are all chasing the same sort of opportunities. So, um, as I say, most people see this as good. It's pretty substantial, $185 million. Um, it'll be interesting to see how well the sales pitch goes because certainly the line that Mark McGowan is pushing is that WA's success in keeping out covid is a big selling point. And yet many people would flip that around and say our um, hardline approach would in fact be seen as a deterrent. Yeah, I mean, it's starting to become a bit like that, isn't it? That in the end, what looked good, especially last year, I think is, and and earlier this year, is starting to look like a negative. Um, You know, if you're going to send your kid to study or you want to travel you know like WA becomes hard work you could get locked out or locked in or whatever um, you know your plans could change uh, and I think the the downside too is you know we haven't had COVID through here so you know what's the potential you come here from a place that's had a lot of COVID and then you end up being locked down here because suddenly we're experiencing a wave that we haven't had before so that's I think people's potentially that's a fear yeah Look, I suppose two other points here. Uh, One, it's just worth reminding people, we're actually making good progress at getting vaccination rates up very high. Latest figures I've seen, 87.1% of West Australians over the age of 12 have had their first dose. Right. So So we are are closing in on 90%, because obviously you're going to have your first dose, you're going to have your second. Yeah. I find that surprising, but it's great. Likewise, yes. Well... Mandatory vaccinations across many industries yep. is a big factor in that. Uh, because then the other part, you know, since we last sat down to discuss uh, the state of the world, Omicron has mm. become big news. Um, you know, another level of uncertainty. Um, I think it's shaping up to, to be not as dire as we feared when we first heard about it, but it, it remains close. to be yeah, seen. No, no, uh, and, of course, we're also seeing many places in Europe particularly, reimposing restrictions. Yeah, yeah, and that's that That's that fine line, isn't it, that people are saying, oh, you overreact and blah, 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 but I think Austria locked down again and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's not like, you know, West Australia is the only place being protect, protective like this. Um, nevertheless, you know, I think we're all kind of wondering and waiting and hoping that it all just, you know, we, we've got to open up at some stage. Right, well, um, Mark, now I guess uh, kind of linked, um, project uh, that is meant to be stimulating activity post-COVID 
is the Bustleton Jetty. Uh, we had an exclusive story on the cost of that that's blown out significantly. So many listeners will be familiar with Bustleton Jetty and may be familiar with the fact that there's a underwater observatory mm. at the end of it. Um, I think about one and a half kilometres yeah, out at the end of the jetty. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why you jump on the little train and go out there if you're not full of energy to walk out. <laughs> uh, turns out that that facility is often booked out well in advance. There's very high demand to get there. Yeah. So it's 44 people an hour, I saw the number. Is that's, yes, I've seen going. that number. Yeah. yeah. So there's a not-for-profit group that actually sort of owns and operates that asset. Uh, they've been developing this very um, interesting plan to develop a new, larger underwater observatory, which looks quite spectacular. So mm. it's it's in the shape of a whale that Bridging emerges whale. out of the yeah. water. Yeah. Uh, done well, that could be great. Done badly, that could be terrible. It could be. Budgeted <laughs> to cost $32 million. Uh, they had uh, the Henderson Company Subcon Solutions lined up to fabricate it and then tow it down to Bustleton Jetty. But Subcon, like many businesses, has been hit by big cost increases. Uh, Cost of materials are up. Cost of shipping has gone through the roof. Cost of labour has increased. Um, So all up, we're told that the project's costs has gone up by more than 50%. Mm. So now it's the question, where to from here? And I think it is tied into that previous topic because when I look at what they're proposing there, I think it really would be one of those really special attractions that a lot of people would put on their bucket list. Yeah. Um, It looks quite amazing and a a huge step up from what's there at the moment. And the kind of thing that interstate, international, even local tourists would look at it and go, wow, I'd like to go there and be part of that. So the problem is, um, Jacinta Burton sat down with the chief executive of Bustleton Jetty, Lisa Shreve, and she talked about the challenge they now face. They've got federal government and state government funding, but now they need to go out and raise another 20-odd million dollars or more so they can fund the uh, increased budget for this project. Uh, She said that they've had discussions with the state government. Their suggestion was... Uh, well, pause the project until the market cools down. She said, well, if we pause that, we might lose our federal funding. The other suggestion was, can you rescale the project? Well, (laughs) the whole point is to have a giant whale. That's what makes the attraction. Uh, That reminded me a bit of when Richard Court, when he was Premier, the project he's best remembered for perhaps was the Bell Tower. That ended up being a scaled-down version because he came under attack for the original budget. So he scaled it down, and then it never really delivered on the promise of what it could have been. Correct. So I put that in the category of penny-pinching. We're talking millions of dollars, but in the grand scheme of things, it was penny-pinching to the long-term detriment. So I see here, especially when you see all the money that governments around the country have been dishing out for all sorts of schemes during and post-COVID, surely there's potential to support a project like this. Yeah. No, no, uh, I hear you, Mark. And um, look, you know, 
we'll see what the government does, I suppose. Uh, and maybe there's some private industry that get involved as well. I mean, there's all that possibility. It's got that, you know, maritime, you know, sort of research, science-y feel to it as well. So, you know, we've got some iron ore magnates are in that space, haven't we, these days? <laughs> well, those iron ore magnates sort of tipped some serious money into the WA Ballet yep. and many other organisations around the state. So, yes, another opportunity. Yep. Now, uh, speaking of iron ore miners, uh, they're very competitive when it comes to controlling their infrastructure. But Gina Reinhardt and Chris Ellison, or companies that they control or run, have struck a major deal. This is all about the harbour at Port Hedland, which is one of the most uh, fundamentally important bits of infrastructure in Western Australia yep. and arguably the nation. Um, it's, I think it's the largest bulk tonnage port in the world mm -hmm. based on volume of material that goes out of there. Yeah. And anyone that's visited Port Hedland knows that it's um, extraordinarily tight and congested. Um, there's been multiple additions, new berths keep on being built, and everyone keeps on saying, we've hit capacity, and yet they managed to find new ways of uh, yeah. getting more capacity through there. So at the moment, you've got Chris Ellison's company, Mineral Resources. Um, you've got Gina Reinhardt's company, Hancock Prospecting, um, and its subsidiary, Roy Hill. They're both keen to expand. Uh, BHP, which uses the same port, they want an increased capacity utilisation. And Andrew Forrest Company, Fortescue Metals Group, they want to increase the capacity to increase their exports. Yeah. And so the Port Hedland Port Authority is sitting down and crunching the numbers and doing the engineering studies and saying, well, we're a bit tight already. Can we fit any more in? So, and Sorry, Mark, to interrupt there, but of course, you know, 10 years ago or so, there was the Outer Harbour proposal, which was going to add 400 million tonnes of capacity or some number like that, wasn't it, by putting almost an island further out to sea and, and linking it. If, you know, I'm, I'm, forgive me if I've got my numbers wrong, but it was quite a substantial expansion on oh, like doubling of the ten $10 billion or... Yeah and, I, yeah, and it came at a high cost as well. Yeah. Yeah, so that was put forward by BHP uh, back in the last iron ore boom. Yeah. Um, but then they, they pulled the pin. Um, and look, I think it's just to highlight how important um, access to shipping berths is... Listeners might remember that BHP wanted to merge with Rio Tinto mm. a bit over a decade ago. And one of the... Or their iron ore assets. Yep. One of the key attractions was that Rio Tinto ships out of um, Cape Lambert yep. down near Dampier. Yep. And they've got... They don't have the same issues that people have up in Port Hedland. Mm. Um, so BHP, you know, that didn't go through. They walked away from the outer harbour. There's been some really smart investment. There's been a lot of dredging in the harbour and a lot of use of, I guess you might call it, smart sensors. So that these giant iron ore tankers go out and there's a very narrow gap between the bottom of the ship and the seabed. Yeah. Um, and they've got to have it very carefully calibrated so they go out with the tide mm. or come in with the tide. So against all that backdrop... Chris Ellison and Gina Reinhardt have said, okay, instead of competing with each other, let's throw our lot in together yep. and we'll join up and propose a new berth in what's called Southwest Creek. And I think this is significant because it should make it a lot easier for the government and the Port Authority up there 
to sort of balance out all those competing bids yep. for increased capacity. And presumably there was a use it or lose it kind of thing going on anyway, right? So they had some rights to do something, but there must be a point where, well, you've got to do it, otherwise you lose that or not? Uh, well, look, this this um, the berths at South West Creek, they were um, earmarked early on for, 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 quote, junior miners. Now, ah, yes. iron ore exporting isn't really the game for junior miners. Yep. Um, but, you know, Chris Allison has argued that mineral resources still sort of fits that definition. Yes, OK. Um, and, of course, Gina Reinhardt has bought Atlas Iron, mm-hmm. which was another junior miner. Which was the real junior, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, look... Um, you know, how much weight that ends up carrying in this discussion, I don't know. Uh, but look, so, hopefully- so they're going to jointly develop it and jointly use it. Is that the proposal? Well, in fact, Roy Hill, which is the subsidiary of Hancock Prospecting, yes, they will operate the port, the berth, as well as some rail infrastructure, uh-huh. um, which is also a big boost for mineral resources. Right, because they've got they, to get this stuff to port. And mostly... They use trucks at the moment. Got it. So, yeah. So they can so, expand capacity or mine further out or it's just cheaper. Yeah, well, they've got a deposit, a project called Marilana, mm-hmm. which they're keen to develop, and that's um, of a scale and at a distance where you need to put in have rail infrastructure right. in place. And do we know what sort of tonnes per year that would be? Uh, that's, um, I think, 25 million oh, tonnes a year. That's pretty substantial. Um, yeah. And look, when you run through Hancock's plans, um, you know, Roy Hill wants to expand... Um, Hancock's got their Mulga Downs project. Um, Atlas Iron's got a new 10 million tonne per annum project. Yeah, right. Um, and, of course, Chris Ellison's got his plans of developing a new trans-shipping port down near Onslow mm-hmm. for his Ashburton project. So it's all about the infrastructure, you know, getting the railways in place and getting the port facilities in place. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I remember there was a description of um, iron ore assets being like, stranded they're almost like stranded assets in a sea but they're in a desert and you've got to get them to a port before you put them on a ship and then get them to sea it's kind of uh it's 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 an odd you know it's well it's the nature of our geography obviously um now mark uh, changing subject again uh there was much said about megan Wynne's status as a billionaire ahead of the float of her company apm um but is she one? I've had a, uh, a lesson in some of the finer points of corporate law over the past few days as I've investigated this issue. And it's not a simple answer as to whether or not she ever was a billionaire. Uh, APM raised about $980 million last month ahead of their listing on the stock market. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, a significant aside, I'll mention that since they've listed on the ASX, They've actually been a very poor performer. Um, they issued the new stock at three dollars fifty-five, um, trading today at around two dollars seventy. Yeah. So it's been a pretty ordinary uh, perform, or in fact, a very poor performance for people that bought into the IPO. But if you looked at the prospectus, the number that you saw was that Megan Wynn had an interest in about three hundred million shares at three dollars fifty-five. That was about $1.1 billion, hence all the headlines about Australia's newest billionaire. When you looked at the details, and this wasn't hidden, but, you know, it was in the footnotes, that included shares held by her husband, Bruce Bellinge. 
Now, he was described as a related party, also described as an associate, and the prospectus also noted that um, each of Megan Wynne and Bruce Bellinge have a voting power in the ordinary shares held by the other. So against that backdrop, it was very surprising when Megan Wynne put it formally lodged her director's interest notice, which specifies how many shares she has an interest in. Mm. And it was a bit under 200 million shares. So the only shares she declared were the ones she owned in her own name Mm -hmm. and no mention of the shares held by her husband, which surprised me because... Well, that's not standard practice, really, is it? Well, I've looked at many of these um, directors' interest notices, and it's very common for directors to include not just the shares in their own name, um, but shares in super funds, shares in family trusts, yeah. and shares held by a spouse. Yeah. Um, even where the director themselves doesn't have any sort of um, direct control over those shares. Mm. Um, yeah, and I've looked at a few examples that have come up recently. So you know, Luke Mader, founder of Mader Group, who we mentioned earlier yeah. in the context of our awards, when he specifies how many shares he has an interest in, it includes shares held by a company that's controlled by his spouse. He also includes shares held directly by his spouse. Um, Mark Clark, who's the chairman of Capricorn Metals, he includes uh, shares held by his spouse. Megan Wynn, now, there isn't a right or wrong here. It all depends on the specific circumstances of each person. And clearly, she has come to a view that, well, I've got my shares and my husband has got his shares and these are separate things. Mm. I've got no relevant interest in those shares. So Which it would was mean a, that he could sell some shares and it wouldn't trigger a uh, a note to the stock exchange then. That's right. Yeah. Except he's probably a significant shareholder, so it probably would anyway. Uh, okay, there could be a change in substantial holding, yes. you're right, if he holds more than 5%, which I think he does. Yeah. Um, but it certainly wouldn't have any bearing on her declaration of mm. her interest in the company's shares. And, look, and this is the point that uh, the company made. He said, look, you can be a related party, you can be an associate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have an, an in- a relevant interest in that person's shares. It was, it was a fascinating exercise to go through. Yeah. So when you look at the number of shares that she has now declared and the current market price, her stake's worth about $520 million. Right. Now, a very large number. Um, and look, that still makes her one of you know, probably the wealthiest business people in WA and a very, very successful uh, business owner. Um, but not a billionaire. But it's a long way short of a billion dollars. Yeah, or a billion Australian dollars. Uh, yeah, well, look, you know, I guess just going right back to what you're saying, like, you know, lots of people do declare. I guess what we don't know is how many people don't declare the shares held by their wives or spouses or other interests. We don't know, do we? We only know the ones that do, so we make an assumption that most people are doing it, but we don't really know that. Um, You know, also odd here is they did declare it in the prospectus, and yet they haven't... It's now changed. So 
has something has the advice changed or has the structure of those shares changed the way they're held we don't know that do we well no the company is saying they're saying no there hasn't been a change in policy right but those different documents have different requirements so they're saying that they met oh, okay, um, right each specific so prospectus is a different requirement to the whatever it is um well if you want to read the details in my article, there's section 608 brackets one of the Corporations Act. Yep. There's also section 12 brackets two brackets C of the Corporations Act. So and Mark, in the end, does it really matter? I mean, in the end, uh, if you're looking at decisions that people make on the basis of the fact that they've uh, got a large shareholding in the company, then does it matter whether it's a one billion or five hundred million? I don't think it really does. Does it matter in terms of people's intentions when it comes to takeovers and things like that? Obviously, that could be a different matter because someone who controls a third of the company versus fifteen percent of it is a—that's a big difference. So, um, you know, I'm curious about how that would then come out at that time. But in the interim, it's not—it's not the biggest deal and. Maybe Megan Wynn, she's a pretty private person. Maybe she just prefers to put her head further down the parapet at the $500 million mark than the billion dollar mark. Yeah. And look, that last point you raised is a really significant one. There have been a number of court cases in in relation to takeovers um, where ASIC in particular has gone after individuals and said, well, look, you, shareholder A and shareholder B, are associates yeah. or related Acting or have some sort of connection. Whatever. Yeah. You know, you're acting together in this. Um, but anyway, APM's just listed. They've just, um, in fact, Friday announced a, uh, a new acquisition. Um, and so they're expanding. Um, reassured the market that they're on track for their prospectus forecasts. Yeah, right. So trying to get that share price back up again. Absolutely. Uh, all right, Mark, we'll move on. Uh Finally, the federal government's key infrastructure body has cast doubt on the value uh, of ECU's much-touted CBD campus. This is a $700 million project. Um, ECU is going to shift a large part of its operations from Mount Lawley to a new campus to be built in Northbridge or in that city link area next next to Yagan Square. As part of that, they submitted their proposal to Infrastructure Australia, which ran the ruler over it and and critiqued or assessed the business case and came to the view that many of the claimed benefits uh, will not stack up Mm. or may not stack up. Uh, the, The big gain that ECU talked about when they submitted the business case was about getting a lot more international students to attend that campus. Now, lots of um, moving parts right at the moment that will affect that. Um, But they had some quite bullish numbers about attracting more international students. But also, intriguingly, they assumed or built in the income of all their international students once they graduate and stay in Western Australia. So... To quote Infrastructure Australia, uh, the business case attributes the entire lifetime earnings of international students as a benefit of the project. And they're saying, hmm, 
maybe that's a bit of a stretch to include all of that in your business case. Right. Um, they also talk about a 19% increase in international student enrolments, um, but sort of say that there's no evidence to sit behind that assumption. So look, it's one of these, um, you know, I've looked at a few of these sort of cost-benefit analyses for infrastructure projects, often very hard to sort of pin down these numbers. Yeah. And poses a sort of a bigger question here. Well, should you rely on that sort of kind of analysis or do you sort of step back and talk about things like how good would a university campus in the CBD really be? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about it for decades and it's, you know, seen as a real positive, right? And especially this version because... This is your sort of arts and entertainment and whopper and all that sort of thing, which is, you know, kind of for some reason or another, seems like in a better sitting in the, a setting in the CBD. I mean, that's one of the arguments, isn't it? Yep. Look, yeah, more people, you know, should add a lot of vibrancy, a lot of activity to that area. Um, and you're right, the performing arts, it's a logical fit mm. in that location. Um and they're all students who can, you know, where they're looking for jobs in, you know, there's the theatre and the arts are all there, you know, so they're actually closer to where the jobs are for them. And um, an amazing opportunity at the current Mount Lawley campus, which I'm sure many people in the property industry <laughs> will be uh, running the ruler over, um, because it's a location that's, you know, it's pretty dead as a university campus, yeah. but a wonderful location for residential development. No, I agree. So I a lot agree. of opportunity there. Yeah, so, uh, and uh, look, and interestingly, I actually did um, have a chat to someone from ECU, so you know, reasonably switched into where to, to the to the hierarchy of the university. It just came up in discussion, and they said they have had significant interest, overseas interest, in this since it's been announced. So they do believe it's quite a draw card, and that there will, you know, possibly even they'll look to try and get students in the city prior to the construction because of the the strong the strength of the demand it's interesting isn't it yep no look i'm um you know i, I think let's, let's put aside the uh, supposedly scientific cost benefit analysis um this is me the economics graduate yeah. saying that <laughs> i know and i'm going oh, <laughs> <laughs> and but i think i think this is a um, a no-brainer i think it's a, a really big upside from this one yeah. and excited to see it happen yeah, and look, our city cities are changing, and you need to evolve the CBDs. Uh, COVID has accelerated something that may mean that cities are changing, just like shopping centres are changing. And having something like this may be part of that evolution, and that's pretty hard to put a cost-benefit analysis on that because it's the future. So, yeah. All right, Mark, thanks for your time. Uh, stay tuned for our last hard copy edition of the year, on the 13th of December, our magazine uh, will feature our Wealth Creators special report outlining the public asset bases of the state's leading entrepreneurs and the family dynasties they've created. Make sure you get your copy of this must-read edition. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts and to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.